0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, today we're going to nerd out about what enlightenment, or if that word is triggering to you, just think of it as high doses of meditation, can do to your brain And more practically, how we can derive these benefits, even if we don't plan to spend decades living in a cave. My guest is Rick Hansen, Ph.D. He's a psychologist and he's the author of a new book called Neurodharma. We go way into the deep end here for sure. But we are also very down to earth in this discussion, talking about how anyone, including you, can reverse engineer enlightenment. That's his term. Uh, Another term uh, that he uses that I like is that we can we can have nirvana operationalized in our nervous system. Quick note that this was recorded before the pandemic, but uh, I'm of the view that enlightenment is evergreen. So here we go with Rick Hansen.
1: The kind of dirty little secret in the growth world is that most positive, most beneficial experiences people have useful, enjoyable, wholesome leave no lasting value behind. While due to the negativity bias in the brain, the negative experiences tend to get lodged right into us. So I've had a longstanding interest in what could be called taking in the good. I think of it as uh, really the fundamental process of social-emotional learning and getting more skillful ourselves in helping the experiences we're having really land inside uh, based on some understanding of how the nervous system is most effectively changed. For the better, and how that boils down in concrete terms, a lot is just stay with the experience for a breath or longer, rather than channel surfing to onto the next shiny object. First point: so if you're having a moment where you feel strong or determined or relieved or uh, close to another person, or you realize how to be more effective with your teenager, whatever it might be, maybe there's a sense of inner peace, maybe there's a sense of self-worth, maybe you just enjoy petting your cat in your lap. Stay with it for a breath or longer so that, in the famous saying, um, neurons that fire together wire together. So the longer you keep them firing, the more they're going to tend to be wiring. Feel it in your whole body, second. You know, the more, the richer the experience is, the more embodied it is, the more it's going to tend to leave a trace behind. And then also another easy, good, simple, private, autonomous thing to do is to focus on what's rewarding about it. What's enjoyable? What's meaningful about this experience? There are different things that happen in the hardware that occur when you do these practices that increase the conversion of the experience to a lasting change of neural structure or function. And for example, when you focus on what's rewarding about it, that increases the activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your hippocampus. There are two of them, technically, but people speak of them in the singular. So you have a hippocampus and The pattern of activation in the moment that underlies the experience you're having of let's say self-worth or determination or commitment or inner peace, um, the experience that you're having at the time, if there's increased dopamine and norepinephrine activity in the hippocampus at the time, based on focusing on what's rewarding or enjoyable about it, well, the pattern of activation at the time is flagged for prioritization and protection and during consolidation into long-term storage. That's kind of a long way of putting that if you stay with the sense of enjoying an experience, it's going to more efficiently turn into a lasting change in your body. It's going to be more hardwired into your nervous system.
0: So I'm just reaching for something in my own life and thinking about how I could operationalize this Mm -hmm. insight. I I love my four-year-old probably by the time this goes up, he'll be five Mm -hmm. and I more than probably will still love him and snuggling with him feels really good yeah for him too yeah well i hope sometimes i feel like i'm coercing him but um (laughs) so that feeling if i can be with it and really take it in all of it in my body in my mind then that is it's registering in a more lasting way in my nervous system which then may make me a more warm and affectionate person generally going forward.
1: Exactly right. And the whole point of this is not to cling to the experience or crave it as it were or turn it into a thing, but rather to help yourself heal and grow through your experiences. And intuitively, people who are good growers... (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> are you know, uh, people who intuitively get the most out of a mindfulness training or who get the most out of a therapy or a, anything, conversation with a friend. They tend to do this implicitly, and teachers or therapists who tend to have good results tend to do this implicitly. But people usually don't systematically, a handful of times a day, really less than 10 minutes a day, probably closer to max five minutes a day, slow it down to let the good learning land. help it sink Mm. in and it's really striking to me as someone who's been involved in the the growth business for a long time in both the wild west forms of it and human potential and the buttoned up you know juilliard school of music forms of it in terms of uh, formal psychotherapy uh it's really striking that we tend to not focus on the actual how of growth and in particular we tend to not teach the skills of it to the people we work with Mm. it's interesting you know uh Fourth grade school teacher, I love school teachers. I had an awesome fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Hall. Thank you, Mrs. Hall. Shout out (laughs) to Mrs. (laughs) Hall. Yeah. Anyway, they have a theory. They have a theory of what they're trying to do in terms of the kid's nervous system. And they also are trying to help kids learn how to learn. You know, they're Mm -hmm. teaching them to be active learners. They treat kids as active learners in memorizing the state capitals in America or something. But when we're working with other people, typically as teachers or therapists or coaches, we tend to not teach them how to be active learners in their own social, emotional, motivational, somatic, or spiritual learning. For me, that's a big missed opportunity. And so I've written a fair amount about that. And I, I think the, you know, that that's a really important thing. What is the book about?
0: What does de- mm-hmm. neurodharma even mean?
1: Yeah, for me, it's a odd word, but what it really means basically is we can know ourselves in two ways, right? We can know ourselves subjectively in what is called the first person perspective, our own experience from the inside out. We can also know ourselves objectively through the third person perspective of science from the outside in, what's actually happening in the nervous system, what's actually happening in the body when we feel all right or strong and determined, but not frustrated and addicted and driven. What's actually happening? Or what's happening when we start moving into more and more stable qualities of well-being and inner peace that we can see demonstrated by our inner teachers or other people known throughout history? What's actually happening inside? So for me, neurodharma is where those two ways of knowing ourselves intersect. There's the neuro, and then there's the dharma. So dharma, the way I use that word, is not restricted to Buddhism Yeah, I use the Buddhist roadmap of the mind in a basically secular way to kind of orient us as we climb the mountain of awakening, as it were. But dharma basically just means truth, the truth of things, which for me is a very deeply scientific way of looking at things, just what's the truth of things? And then neurodharma is what's the truth of things, particularly what's the truth of various kinds of well-being, very well-developed in the living body. So that's what it's about. And I got really interested In taking a fresh look at the peaks of human potential, what is awakening? What is it to be awakened? What are the qualities that we see in people throughout history and in the present day are models for us of stable mindfulness and kindness and inner peace and inner strength and, and authenticity and really being in the present moment and feeling connected to everything, like what's going on there? So what the book's about basically is seven qualities that I see in people who are really far along. I see them in myself. I I see them in you. And uh, it's about developing them. So we grow them by practicing them. So it's a book of practice. It's not an airy-fairy magic carpet ride to the peak of enlightenment. I don't consider myself enlightened. I think enlightenment is when you're stably... Fulfilled and perfected in these seven qualities, and irreversibly so. So the seven qualities are steadying the mind. These are practices, too. Steady your mind. Let's think about that.
0: So, These qualities are described in the book and then followed up with practice. Yeah. How do you develop Yes.
1: How do you steady your mind these days? And including in very deep ways, how do you do that? Okay. Second, warming the heart. Cultivation of compassion, kindness, sense of belonging, healing of old wounds that happen in relationships, feelings of inadequacy, insecure attachment. How do you actually practice with all that? Third, I call it resting in fullness. That's material related to equanimity. It's also related to what we were talking about earlier, about how do you stay in the green zone when you're challenged? And how do you develop? There's a teaching from Upandita. It's a really pithy line. He says, the purpose of practice is to expand the range of experiences in which we're free really interesting. It's easy to feel great when, let's say you're cuddling your your four or five-year old. That's really, that's good. But how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with physical pain, illness, challenge over time? You know, Those are the range of experiences in which we want to be increasingly free. So resting in fullness. And then those three cluster together, steadiness of mind, warmth of heart, kind of a happy equanimity. And then the next three also cluster together. I call it being wholeness. What I mean by that is accepting yourself fully and being less divided internally and increasingly having a kind of non-dual sense of awareness and the contents flowing through awareness as just one single field of consciousness. Well, uh, just unpack that for a second because non-dual may be a bit
0: of a yeah. jargony term for people. Non-dual meaning there isn't me and here, And everything else out there, there is not a duality between observer, object, and
1: subject. Yeah, let me unpack that. I just went right past that. So there are two kinds of non-duality, really three kinds, if you think about it. The first kind is, is internal, in terms of our subjectivity. Very often we have a sense that there is an I inside who is witnessing thoughts, reactions, plans, sensations, and so forth. And that somehow that's all happening in a kind of implicit field of awareness. It's possible, and you see people do it, and I've developed this myself, it's possible for those distinctions to soften internally. So there's more and more of a sense of consciousness occurring without a sharply divided I who's watching things. And there's more of a sense of just being your mind as a whole being the stream of consciousness in this moment and this moment as a whole. And what is good about that, and there's, by the way, a a lot of neuroscience about each one of these things. When you move more into that sense, that holistic way of experiencing yourself, things taken as a whole, the structure of suffering starts changing because the structure of suffering is parts struggling with parts. Inner conflict starts to abate. And the other thing that's really neat about it is that when you move more into that sense of things as a whole, you begin to activate neural circuits on the sides of your brain, especially the right side, and you deactivate circuitry, as it were, uh, reduced activity and circuitry in the midline of the cortex, the front part of which is about stressful task-oriented doing, but the back part of which is that default mode network where people go when they're doing a lot of ruminating, Mm -hmm. including anxious ruminating with a lot of self-preoccupation, me, myself, and I. So when you move into more of a sense of things as a whole, you can just watch it. If you be aware of the sense of your body as a whole, breathing as a whole body, or the sense of breathing in a large part of your body all at once, like the whole torso, left, right, left, and right together. Or as you get a sense of the whole space you're in, the whole environment, just watch your mind. Very quickly, you'll calm down. It'll, you'll be calmer. You'll have less sense of self-preoccupation, less sense of inner division, really great and that's just being wholeness. The one after that, the fifth practice I call receiving nowness. everybody says be here now, right power of now. Well how? <laughs> you know how do you actually do that? How do you come really close to the front edge of now? And there's neurology about how to do that having to do with different circuits of attention that we have and more fundamental circuits are involved with being alerted by the next new thing. It's sort of like the front edge of the windshield of consciousness. So as you move closer and closer to the subject of now, you move closer and closer to the object of now. And as you do that, again, suffering starts falling away. It's what the great teachers have said. You're more in the moment. And technically, in the brain, you move closer and closer to the immediacy of perceiving what's happening now. And you become less engaged with neural processing that's full of worries and angers and preoccupations. Sometimes you need to do that, but most of us are not in the moment. You know, you probably have heard about these studies where people are pinged routinely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have a wandering mind on average 50% of the time. So let's say you're, or I, let's say are more present than average. Well, that means a lot of people, are just gone 80% of the time, right? And as mind-wandering increases, so does negative rumination statistically. So we're more inclined to go negative, the more our mind is wandering. So being able to stabilize in the present moment, particularly to be here at will, is a really useful strength to develop. So uh, that's the practice of receiving nowness. And then I'll just finish on the last two practices. And these are things I think, again, we see in people who are really far along. We also know what they're like in ourselves. We've all had flashes of these. question is how to stabilize it, right? So I call it opening into allness. I'm reverse engineering enlightenment in a way. That's what I'm trying to do here. Like, What goes on with people who are having these extraordinary, quite frequent, actually, about a third of the people in the world report having had these kind of very non-ordinary, sometimes called self-transcendent or non-dual experiences in the second sense of non-duality in that the boundary or, or line between... Me and everything else softens, fades, sometimes just totally drops out. What's going on? And more generally, how can we cultivate a sense that's peaceful in which we feel less of a beleaguered self struggling with the universe around us, divided from it, and more carried along and supported by a vast network of causes, of factors that is reality. So there's really interesting neurology about how to shift from the kind of classic egocentric perspective. It's called that. doesn't mean negatively. It's just self-referential where we're regarding what's happening around us from my perspective. Then there's this other perspective this much more impersonal and holistic, fancy term for it is allocentric perspective where we have a sense of things as a whole. And to kind of pull some threads together... When we are feeling internally divided and caught up in the default mode, let's say, and when we are doing mental time traveling not in the present, and when we have that kind of egocentric orientation to life that we're divided from it and separated from it, the neurology, what's actually happening in our bodies for those three ways of relating to life kind of come together. They're interrelated circuits that promote the sense of inner division lost in the past or the future, and a sense of me, myself and I, strong sense of self. On the other hand, when people have a sense of things as a whole, in the present, peacefully connected with everything else, those experiences tend to come together and the underlying neural circuitry that promotes that way of being, those three qualities of being, is also interrelated. And with practice, we can train. So that more and more stably, we acquire the trait. We develop, that's lasting learning. Lasting growth is trait. Instead of just a passing state. state.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly right. So well, I want to talk more about how to do that. Uh, yeah. You have, a, in terms of just putting some meat on the bone, we have a nice phrase here. You shift from seeing yourself as an isolated, is I'm reading from your book. You can shift from seeing yourself as an isolated actor, sometimes flailing against everything, to feeling that everything is manifesting locally as you. Yeah, that sounds cool. It is cool. Uh, but how do you do it?
1: <laughs> practice. Practice really helps. And, and there are practices in the book. Oh, yeah, definitely. For example, just I'll just kind of highlight some things here. So one really powerful practice is if you are, do any kind of meditation and you can do it in an informal way, be aware of the sense of your whole body as you breathe. You can start out with your chest then torso, then whole body. So you have a sense of whole body awareness. And when you do that, it naturally tends to quiet activity in those midline cortices and increase activity in the lateral, on the side of the brain, networks that are involved in gestalt or holistic processing. And as you do that, you can, again, just watch your mind. Internal chatter will get quieter. The lateral networks on the sides and the midline networks are connected like a seesaw. When one goes up, it pushes the other down. So as you increase that lateral activity, that those negative self-preoccupations or stressful doing in the midline cortex decrease. So just doing that, that's a really useful thing to do. Another thing that's useful to do-
0: But how does that get me toward feeling like the world is manifesting locally oh as Oh yeah, me? I'm moving there. Yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah,
1: so now you have more of a sense of things as a whole. Okay. Definitely. So right, but, but to go to the point, yeah. when you're contracted inside yeah. yourself, how can you feel like the world is manifesting locally as you, you know? So another thing you could do, just try it, is to lift your gaze out from your body toward the horizon. Naturally, as we bring the gaze closer, the egocentric perspective increases, right? Is it going to eat me? Can I eat it, right? Friend or foe. On the other hand, when your gaze moves out, uh, 10 feet away toward the horizon, maybe up above, again, watch your mind. You'll naturally become more peaceful. You'll have more of a sense of things as a whole. There'll be not such an intense sense of me, myself, and I. And in that process, you will be activating uh, the the circuitry, uh, the neural circuitry of the allocentric mode. And through repeatedly stimulating that way of being, you will strengthen those circuits over time because neurons fire together, wire together, for example. Uh, there are other ways also to develop that more sense of allness. A key part of that is to practice with a sense of self. So in that sixth of seven practices, the allness practice, that's where I drop in a lot of deep teachings about is there a self? What is the self? Uh, What does it mean to be a person without presuming an internal entity inside? That is a self in the way that I'm meaning that word. And there are things we can do to be more comfortable with regarding others and ourselves as persons, who exist, who have rights, who have dignity, who have needs, who have responsibilities as persons without being identified with uh, some unified, independent entity inside that we think is me.
0: You know, this non-self
1: or selflessness
0: idea that is central to Buddhism is confusing to a lot of people. Yeah. Um Definitely. I, I, there's a quote I've heard it third hand. It was mm-hmm. from some allegedly from a Tibetan monk who said it to the scholar Robert Thurman, who then said it to Mark Epstein, the psychiatrist who's written a bunch of books about Buddhism and psychology, who said it to me or wrote it in one of his books that the monks is said to have said to Thurman, of course, you're real. You're just not really real. And I like that because, of course, you are you. You've got, just as you said before, you're a person with rights. you get got to put your pants on and make a dentist appointment, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look closely enough on some fundamental level, you can't find some core essence. And that is a very important thing to know. And and the constantly butting your head up against that, the constant looking, really, over time, I think, is what pounds into your neurons. A deeper felt sense of, oh, yeah, I don't have to take this me so seriously and build up and defend it all the time
1: yeah you it's really interesting that when as people relax the sense of self and i mean that word self not as the person as a whole and that's a useful distinction but as this presumption that there's some kind of entity inside right that's enduring and unified and independent so when people relax that when they relax ego relax conceit When they are less caught up in possessiveness, you know, my precious, or Mm -hmm. superiority, I matter more than you, or identification, you know, I am that right. As they do that, they become more functional as persons. (laughs) They become more successful as persons. Why?
0: Why? why? That seems like a paradox. Why is that?
1: There's a lot of defensiveness and stressfulness when we're caught up in trying to impress others, or compare ourselves to others, or judge ourselves routinely. And people can have compassion for persons, including the person that they are, without thinking that there's some sort of entity inside over there. Now, there's a, another line. I wondered if you were going to quote this one, that you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Yeah, the Jack Angler, the yeah. f- famous therapist yeah. that said that. Yeah. And so there's definitely a place for being on your own side and and recognizing that, you know, the body is continually constructing a sense of the person process is how I think of it. That's ongoing. That's completely natural. But what's wild is that at this point, there's a lot of neuroimaging on what's happening in the brain when people feel like me or I in different ways, recognizing your own picture among other pictures Uh, pulling up a personal memory, what's your stand on some big moral issue. Yeah,
0: they have people do this while their brains are being scanned, yes.
1: Yeah, what's wild is that the patterns of activation are scattered all over the brain. It's like polka dots. There's everywhere in their brain. There's certain parts of the brain, like I said, in the midline cortex, especially more toward the default mode end of it, that tend to be particularly involved. But selfing, as it were, as a process, is scattered all over the brain. You know, we all want to feel special, but there's no place in the brain that's special for self, Mm. right, even though there's a lot of localization of function for all kinds of other things. And you watch it, these patterns of activation uh, light up, then they fade, it's like a Christmas tree, and you really get that this idea we have that our self is unified, you don't see that in the brain, it's spread all over the place. The sense that we have that we are independent No, the sense of self increases, decreases due to all kinds of causes, rises and passes away. And we have a sense that uh, we're sort of enduring, you know? No, it's very transient. Just like you said. So as you said, when you look closely from that third-person perspective on the brain or when you look closely from the inside out, that first-person perspective, you see that the defining characteristics of the conventionally assumed self don't exist, I say the self is like a unicorn. It's a yeah. mythical beast. We can have, we can think about it. We can have experiences of what we think it's there. It's always implicit. It's never found. The whole package is never found. And what starts to happen is that you lighten up about it, and which makes you a lot happier.
0: Yeah, I mean, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein has said that one way to think about enlightenment is lightening up. Yeah. Much more of my conversation with Rick Hansen coming up right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you. Because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T Mobile, Just to continue with this talk about how we mortals who are not yeah. going to spend decades in yeah. robes uh, practicing could get a taste of this allness. You have practices in the, in the book where we can work meditatively mm-hmm. toward this insight. But you also talk about, well, you have some cognitive exercises to get us to think about how small we are within the universe, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And, but then there are also some recommendations for a kind of like how to live your life. That might bring us toward seeing this on a more regular basis. And you have some bullet points here like, one is a simpler life with less self referential task doing makes more room for an undefended, uncontracted re- receptivity to everything. And I saw that and I found it pretty provocative because my life is yeah. not that simple.
1: Yeah, mine's not that simple either. I put that sentence in there a little bit to tell the truth about. People who have simpler lives, who are more connected to nature, there's more room for the sense of this. Yeah, Uh, nature
0: was the other thing you listed on here, yeah.
1: But I guess... Some
0: monks, are uh, there's a reason why they have this experience, like every Tuesday.
1: Yeah. What it says, though, for all of us, like I'm going to get on a plane pretty soon today, and I'll do little things multiple times a day. And the larger point is, the bigger the challenge, the bigger the resources need to be. So... If you want to cultivate a greater sense of taking care of business, you know, you have your ticket with you, I have my passport with me because my driver's license has expired and I haven't renewed it yet. So you take care of business, but if you're interested in developing this sense of just interconnectedness and gratitude, really, for everything that is, and you have more of a sense of being carried along rather than oppressed, even though you recognize ways that you actually are oppressed, but by having more of a sense of interconnectedness, it draws you into a sense of resources and things that you can use. Well, if you wanna cultivate that in a life like I have or you have, you really have to practice. So multiple times a day, I'll just sort of look like I'll step out on a busy city street pretty soon and I'll look around and I'll I'll just have a sense of, wow, all this is here. So many things caused these skyscrapers to be here, caused the sidewalk, caused the taxis to be here. I'm part of a vast whole that's enabling what's happening right now and is kind of carrying me along to the next thing. Looking at an airport uh, as you land or take off, they're extraordinary places. So much human effort, so much technology, and that rests on previous generations of effort that have led to the capabilities we have today. Oof, that draws me out. Or crazy, you know, I. Like I have a bottle of water here. I look at it. I go, oxygen. Where'd that come from? It came from exploding stars. We're breathing stardust. And yeah, it totally goes to my geeky you know, science fiction background, but it's also completely true. And just little reflections like that in the flow of a day where you just kind of drop in. It's like, you know it conceptually, can you feel it? Like you said earlier, you move from knowing it to feeling it. And if you give yourself that multiple little times a day, there's a proverb, you know, drop by drop is a water pot filled, likewise the wise one gathering it little by little fills oneself with the good. And in these little drops, as well as, you know, if you could do a mega practice like a weekend retreat or a day of meditation or 20 minutes straight, great. But a lot of the other opportunities are to kind of weave these ways of being through practicing them again and again throughout your day, which to me is incredibly hopeful because it means that we grow through lots of little steps that we are responsible to take. In your mind, no one can defeat you, but no one can do it for you. And that makes it real.
0: You, you talked about big projects or something. I don't remember the exact words, require a lot of resources. What big your, challenges. Big Bigger challenges, challenge. yes. So I think, you know, this is a big challenge. And some people think, oh, well, I need to rip my life up to go experience this. And I think that is, if you can do it without hurting anybody or yourself, then go for it. I, mean, I have a lot of respect for people who go yeah. become monks or become meditation teachers and spend a lot of time on silent retreat. But you don't have to rip your life up. You just have to, and this is going to sound daunting, but make it the organizing principle of your life, which you can do within the current context of your life. You can live your life by all intents and purposes For all intents and purposes, or at least by every objective measure, the same way. And then you're still going to the same job and interacting with the same people. But if your orientation is, hey, I'm going to squeeze in meditation every day and I'm going to do all these little practices and they they become just a part of your life at every day part. And then you're going off on a retreat once once a year or once every other year. That is a way in which it just. Over time, I think it takes on a big momentum.
1: That's huge. And that's personally what I've done, honestly, myself. And I think it's doable, that whole approach. I don't know if you'd accept this way of talking about it, but I've thought about your book. And I think that if people are 10% more practice-oriented, and what I really mean is more like 1%. If people were to increase by 1%, the number of breaths in a day, or minutes or seconds in a day in which they were purposefully helping themselves grow in some way helping something land really trying to understand something recognize what would be better to do next time when you're talking with your partner 1% if people were a little 1% more effortful 1% more deliberate every day they would definitely become 10% happier mm-hmm. and maybe even more
0: yeah I agree. I, I often joke that the 10% compounds annually, yeah. um, and so I do think this is the room for infinite expansion here. Final question for me, which is just, is there more to say about feeling part of the all in your life, and what does that mean? Because you do, you are writing a ton of books, you are treating patients, and yeah. you're quite active in the world, and yeah. yet it sounds like you do, for some percentage of the time, feel like the world is manifesting locally through
1: you. Yeah, that's accessible. There are people who've had these huge fireworks experiences. I've had mid-range fireworks experiences. The problem is the fireworks usually fade. And then what do you do? How do you go forward in your life? But the kind of open-hearted, receptive, present moment, founded on, grounded on those three first practices, steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, you know, equanimous well-being, those are foundational, then, yeah, a lot. You really can feel like a much softer sense of um, who you are and, and where you are in a way that's really great. It's really accessible. I'm still working on it. And I think that those fireworks experiences can often really help people because they're breakthroughs. They show you what's actually really true. But through cultivation over time, people can definitely experience that while still being functional. Anything I missed? Oh, timelessness.
0: That's seventh of the S. Yeah,
1: Yeah. timelessness is really interesting. That takes us into the potentially third kind of non-duality, as it were, and a big area of controversy in Buddhism and also elsewhere. In other words, when people are following the classic progression in the Buddhist training that basically says, okay, you quiet your mind, you steady it, You bring it to singleness. You move into the jhanas. That's the right concentration or wise concentration. Jhanas
0: are deep states of concentration.
1: Non-ordinary. Very, very non-ordinary. You're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Uh, And I write about them in the book. What are they actually characterized by? So you move through these already not typical states, usually experienced after days, if not weeks on retreat. I've experienced them. And then you move into what are called the formless jhanas, where it gets really exotic. And then you drop into the unconditioned, dun-da-da. What is that, right? So people have been arguing about that ever since. And do we understand the ultimate, the ultimate sense of unconditioned, the unconditioned or unfabricated, unconstructed? How do we understand that? And the Buddhist training is to encounter it in some way and be changed by it, and then be increasingly able in small ways, drop by drop over the course of a day, to be in touch with it. So I wanted to honor that. And for me, there's a place of practice. There's a place for be more aware and be nicer. That's kind of great. Consider the alternative, right? That's great. And if that's all you want, that's cool. On the other hand, the path goes all the way to the summit. and I'm inspired by that. Uh, I think that on all throughout the world, across multiple paths of practice, I think of them as different routes up to the fulfillment of the heights of human potential, whatever that is, uh, different routes up the mountain to the peak. But on each of those different routes and different traditions, including secular traditions, you find the same steps, the same trainings in steadiness of mind, warmth of heart, wholeness, nowness, allness, and more and more deeply, What is unconditioned, actually? So one way to understand it is that we are unconditioning ourselves and we are getting more in touch with, we are unconditioning from what is reactive, habitual, contracted, and pressured, and we are opening into what is unconditioned in our ordinary mind, the unconditioned field of awareness, which can represent anything. All right, that's great. Second way to understand it is that people are having extraordinary states of mind within ordinary reality. When they go through these cessation experiences, they drop into nirvana. What is nirvana operationalized? As you said earlier, what is nirvana operationalized in the nervous system? So I write about that. What might that actually be? So that's the second way to understand it. Have
0: we seen nirvana in the MRI?
1: That's a great question. You've seen people in deep jhanas And what's interesting is the brain doesn't look that different, (laughs) but there are some key distinctions that seem like plausible neural correlates for what the jhanas are described as. So the third way, though, to understand it, and it's whether when someone is really, really developed in this way or accessing pinpricks of this over the course of their ordinary day, are they accessing something that's genuinely transcendental, genuinely transcending? ordinary reality. And in the book, I talk about those different ways of relating to unconditioned, the unconditioned, unconditioning, with respect for both of them. If someone is purely secular, they wanna stop at the first two, fine. There's a very strong tradition in Buddhism that says, no, there really is something genuinely transcendental that is transcendentally unconditioned and thus timeless. It's not impermanent, it's not subject. To arising and passing away, and the ultimate aim of practice to have some access to it—that is a huge area of debate. I vastly respect people like Stephen Batchelor and others who are, you know, very firmly try to keep practice in a secular frame. On the other hand, most people in the world right now, right now, in the last twenty-four hours or right now, the majority of people in the world who are doing something contemplative are doing it in the with reference to something transcendental. For them, it's in the frame of something theistic, if you will. So I, I think it's important to honor that and try to think, how might unconditionality intersect with conditioned, ordinary reality? And I, I go after that without trying to preach it to anybody. So anyway, that's the, those are the seven. I just think it's so cool. And what an opportunity, you know, to keep playing with it ourselves. And every day, have a, you know, a little opportunity to grow a little further and get a little deeper in those seven. Each one of them can be developed just as a taste or all the way, really, really fulfilled, and that keep us busy, a whole good life.
0: Amen. Or sadhu, as they say in the uh, Buddhist tradition, uh, well said. Let's do the plug zone. Can you just remind us of the name of the book, your other books, where you are digitally, et Did cetera, you call it the
1: plug zone?
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's the cool. end of every show.
1: <laughs> that's good. So, the book's called Neurodharma. And I could add that I also have an online program uh, that people can do that's experiential. So, it takes the book and has a whole bunch of guided meditations. What's the URL for that? Just go to my website, rickhanson.net. Okay. And then you can find it there, rickhanson.net. And um, in that program, it was based on a 10 day meditation retreat I taught. So, it has all the talks, has the guided meditations. Q&A, a lot of supportive material. So that's the online program that's a good companion experientially to the book. Neurodharma. And you've written Buddha's Brain. It's yeah. uh, my sixth book. What else? What are the other books? Right. My first book was Mother Nurture, which, which is- Which you written, uh, with your wife? Yeah, and, a, and an obstetrician gynecologist named mm-hmm. Ricky Polykov. Basically, it's about promoting the long-term well-being of mothers past the postpartum period. And if we wanted to change the world, you know, make our number one public policy priority, taking good care of mothers, hello, in a generation that would change everything. Yeah, I've heard Melinda Gates talk about that. You just tick off the names of the other books? Yeah, so Mother Nurture, followed by Buddhist Brain, followed by Just One Thing, 52 Practices, followed by Hardwiring Happiness followed by Resilient, which I wrote with our son, Forrest Hanson. Big shout out to you, Forrest, uh, who helps me do a podcast. I actually, I help him do his podcast, really, the Being Well podcast. We try to learn from the master, Dan Harris. And uh, then the most recent sixth book, Neurodharma.
0: Excellent. Thank you for doing it. Congratulations on the book.
1: Oh, it's a real pleasure to do this, and I appreciate your graciousness, honestly, in having me here. You're free.
0: Big thanks to Rick. I also want to thank the team, everybody who worked so hard on this show. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman, our new producer. Our sound engineers, Matt Boynton and Anya Shashik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. we got a ton of useful input from TPH colleagues such as Ben Rubin, Jen Point, Nate Toby, Liz Levin. Also, big thank you, as always, to the ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you on Wednesday for a fresh episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: Once upon a beat.